Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have your word, that your word is powerful, as we've just been hearing in the song. Thank you that it has the power to change lives. Pray that, it, that you would do that now by your Holy Spirit in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are thinking this morning about breakthroughs. Do you know that feeling of facing a problem that seems utterly intractable, unsolvable? It goes round and round in a pattern, a cycle of repeating mess and failure. Our hearts are heavy as we watch the news about uh, Israeli and Palestinian conflict. A seemingly unbreakable cycle of violence and suffering that's been going on certainly for decades and in many ways for millennia. Sometimes these cycles of pain and suffering can be much more personal. <clears throat> Did you hear Prince Harry on Friday giving this interview to a podcast where he talked about the genetic cycle of pain and suffering in his own family? The sense that the pain that his father had suffered in his own upbringing had been visited on Harry in his upbringing. And his desire to break through and end that cycle. Maybe we can see it in our own lives and families, whether it's cycles of addiction, alcoholism, or anger, depression, anxiety, cycle that seems to, that seem to run through generations, or even just cycles of sin in our own lives. We mess up, we feel bad about it, we say sorry, we resolve to do better, we have a period of seeming calm, and then we mess up again, and the cycle goes on and on. Where is the breakthrough going to come from? Well, Genesis chapter 38 ends with a breakthrough, literally. We heard the birth of Perez to Tamar. And it's an unusual birth because Zerah sticks his hand out first and the midwife ties a thread around his hand to show that he's the firstborn. But Perez breaks through and emerges first. And that is what his name means, breakthrough. Continuing that pattern in the book of Genesis of older and younger children and one usurping the other. And this is a chapter about a breakthrough then in the lives of Tamar and Judah following the sordid events that led up to that moment. Now this, this chapter does sort of stick out a bit, doesn't it? Um, it? It puzzles people sometimes. What's it doing here? We, you know, we thought we were settling in for this great story of Joseph and suddenly we're not talking about Joseph at all. You know, is, it, is it here by accident, this chapter? What's it doing here? Well, it, it's helpful to remember that the title for chapters 37 to 50 in Genesis is not the story of Joseph, but the story of Jacob, his father. And in fact, it's the story in one sense of all his Sons, We've already seen that, the way that the, all the sons are interacting together with, with a particular focus on Joseph. But in chapter 37, we heard of Judah's callous plan to sell his brother Joseph for money. And so one question is, what happens next then to Judah, who came up with that plan? And, and in particular, how on earth do we end up with the family line of God's people continuing not actually through Joseph, who looks like he's the hero of these chapters. But the family life continues through Judah, on whom this chapter focuses. And we heard that uh, in the second reading in Matthew, where suddenly here we are with Judah and Tamar and Perez all there in the genealogy 
that's given at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. So this chapter is focusing on those questions. How does Judah go from his role in chapter 37 to, to his role in the, in, in the family of God? Let's go um, quickly through the four scenes and then the epilogue of this chapter before we draw out a bit some, some themes of what it shows us. So first of all, scene one, wickedness and innocence. Wickedness and innocence. Here's the setup. Judah heads away from his brothers and marries a Canaanite woman. Never a good idea. Specifically discouraged by Abraham chapters earlier. They have three sons, Ur, Onan and Shelah. Judah gets a wife for Ur. It's not said explicitly, but presumably Tamar is a Canaanite woman too. She's an outsider, a Gentile therefore. Never a great plan for God's people to marry outside of the people of God. But the issue is not her. It's the sin of Judah and his sons. Ur errs, as one translator puts it. He is wicked. God puts him to death. We don't know why, what he did, but the narrator is clear. He dies because of his sin. So up steps Onan. Now, this is a bit strange, isn't it? But the custom and the law in those times was in, the, in these situations that a brother or close relative should marry a widow who hasn't had any children yet in order to provide children for her. And you might think, well, you know, what's that about? Well, in that culture, this was Tamar's pension plan. This was her only hope of survival into old age. She would otherwise be left penniless and utterly vulnerable. But, as you might possibly imagine, this custom and law was not always popular with the men, not least because it involved fathering a child that in one sense was not your own. And Onan, we are told, will not fulfil his duty. And that, So that is the problem here. He's the one with the power, he's the one with the duty and the responsibility, and he prefers to look after number one. And so the narrator says again, this was wicked and the Lord puts him to death. And so Judah is left with one son and a twice bereaved widow with no children. Now the narrator has told us exactly what's going on and that's unusual in these narratives. Mostly the narrative leaves these sorts of things unsaid but uh, it says very clearly that what they did was wicked and God put them to death. That is what's going on here. But Judah doesn't know that and he reaches a different conclusion. So he thinks, no, the problem can't be with my two fine sons, because, you know, in one sense that would cast him in a bad light as well if the problem is with his sons. And so like Adam in the Garden of Eden, Judah abdicates his responsibility and he concludes, well, you know, it's obvious, the problem here lies with the woman. The reason the sons have died must have something to do with her. Now we as the readers know her to be innocent, but Judah decides he can't be too careful. Do you see that in verse 11 then? Because he's thinking, Shelah might die as well. And he makes a vague promise that, you know, one day, one day we'll sort this out, but for the time being, just, just go back to your father's house and um, I will deal with you later. He's thinking, it's your fault, let's get you out of the way. Well, that is scene one. Scene two, deception. Verses 12 to 19, Judah's wife dies and when his mourning is over, off he goes to see his mates and Tamar sees an opportunity. Unlike with Ur and Onan, there is no narrator comment on the morality of what she does. And that's important. It means that it's not the point. Remember in Genesis, when we see, we, we want to read these as sort of morality tales of, you know, do this and don't do that. That's not what these stories are. 
And we need to see that very clearly from the outset. Um, but let's, let's read on. She sees an opportunity to put right the injustice that she suffered. She goes to Enaim, which ironically means eyes, the place where she sits by the road. It means eyes, the place of seeing. And what does she do at the place of seeing? She disguises herself as a prostitute. Now, Judah has firm principles about what sex he will allow his daughter-in-law to have, doesn't he? That's very clear. But when it comes to himself, he can't suppress his own appetites. And Tamar knows this, and there's some shrewd business dealing, and Tamar manages to convince Judah to part with his seal and his cord and his staff. That's the equivalent of him leaving all his credit cards and PIN numbers with Tamar. And don't miss the irony of what is going on here. This cycle of deception in the sons of Abraham continues. Because what have we seen before in Genesis? Jacob deceives Isaac in a ruse involving a goat and some clothing. In the last chapter, Judah deceived Jacob in a ruse involving some, a goat and some clothing. And so guess what? Perhaps in Prince Harry's terms, the genetic cycle of pain and suffering continues. Tamar deceives Judah in a ruse involving a goat and some clothing. So that is scene two. Scene three, laughing stock. Too ashamed to deal with his mess himself, Judah sends his mates to get his pledge back and he can't find her. And twice we hear, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Best leave it says Judah, or he will become a laughing stock. Newsflash, he already is one. Now, scene four, eyes opened, 24 to 26. It all comes together. Simply getting pregnant isn't enough for Tamar because of the shame and the guilt associated with prostitution and promiscuity. So she has to bring her plan to full fruition. Judah hears of her pregnancy and his anger burns. It literally burns, doesn't it? He goes beyond the law and he demands that she be burned. But wait, Tamar, you know, you can imagine perhaps as she's being dragged out to the stake, she has a dramatic revelation. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. Now, do you remember in chapter 37, it was examine the robe and see if you recognize it. Now, Judah who said those words, son of the deceiver himself, Jacob, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. She is more righteous than I, he says. She is more righteous than I. And suddenly the scales drop, his eyes are opened. Now he's not saying that she's perfectly innocent, as we saw before. That isn't the point here. But the point is that relative to him, she has pursued justice, while he has throughout pursued injustice and selfish gain, what works for him. So he's saying she is more innocent than he is, because his concern throughout has only been for himself. And so we reach the epilogue, as we saw before the last few verses. Sons are born, there is a breakthrough. Well, what then do we learn from this as 21st century readers? There's three things to see very briefly about Judah and about Tamar and finally about Jesus. 
First of all, with Judah, we see the blindness that burns. Do you see the logic of what is going on in Judah's heart through this episode? The problem is where he starts in uh, in verses 1 to 11. He starts with a lie. What is the lie that he starts with? He starts by believing that he's innocent. And that's his kind of starting point, his axiom, his thing that, that must be true no matter what else happens. I can't do any wrong, and neither therefore can my sons. And so when things start to go wrong, well, she must be guilty. So she must be shunned. And so even though he is the guy with all the power and all the agency in this situation, in his own mind, all he can see is his innocence and her guilt. Do you see? And so his own sexual desires take absolute priority and her real needs for her long-term welfare go to the bottom of the priority list. Do you see who he's thinking of? Do you see how his mindset, his worldview works? He's at the centre, he's in the right, everyone else around him can sort of fit in with that. And so when then he hears that she has been behaving as a prostitute, it all then confirms what he's already decided, doesn't it? You know, that woman is bad, she's a bad egg, she's bad for our family. Oh look, she's been dressing up as a prostitute, well we'd better burn her. And so do you see, as he says this and he goes through with this, really, he's burning himself, as Tim Keller puts it. He's burning himself because in order to go through with this, he has to tell himself lie after lie. In order to justify himself and in order to condemn the woman that he has wronged. Do you see? His blindness to who he really is and who, who, his, who his family really is and his blindness to what he's done burns. As he burns in anger and he calls for Tamar to burn, he burns himself as well. Now, isn't it the same for us? You see, if nothing is ever my fault and all the problems in my life are caused by other people, what happens in the end is that I have to to use other people to justify myself. So other people become a means to boost my fragile ego and boost my self-worth because, you know, who else is going to do that? And that inevitably causes huge hurt and injustice. Think of the team leader in the, uh, the office or in school who directs his team to divert their energy to the pet project that will boost his prospects at the expense of everyone else. Think of the person for whom friendship is always an opportunity to offload, to moan, to complain. The person to whom others will always be listening and whom others will always be affirming. But because their concern is primarily to justify themselves, they haven't got time to listen to others. Think of the husband whose one concern for his wife is not her welfare and her flourishing, but simply that she make him look good at any cost. Think of the parents who desire success for their children in some way, not because it will actually help their children, but because it will enable the parents to boast to others 
And so they drive them to more and more achievement because they're serving themselves. If we don't see ourselves just a little in any of those situations at any time in any way, are we actually as blind as Judah? And is our blindness burning others and in the end burning us as well? That is Judah. Then secondly, Tamar. The truth that brings breakthrough. We know the truth about Tamar from the start, as we saw. It's the sons. The sons were wicked. That is why they died. And and, and Tamar begins just as an innocent bystander. She doesn't even speak in verses 1 to 11. She's acquired as a wife for her by Judah. And just through the circumstances of life and of sin being done to her, she becomes a powerless victim who's left with no choice but to take matters into her own hands. Now, we always bear responsibility for our sin. Sinful responses to sin are still sin. And in that sense here, it's not that Tamar is absolutely innocent in the course that she takes, but what Judah says is that she is more innocent than him. I was struck when I heard recently that more than half of all women in prison in the UK are victims of crimes that are more serious than the ones they've been convicted of. Isn't that striking? They're often victims of abuse in childhood, domestic abuse. And it can sometimes seem to victims that they have no choice but crime. And of course there is a place for justice, even in those circumstances. But there's also a place for taking a step back and saying, have you realised that the victim of injustice may be the person that we need to listen to most to find the breakthrough? That's how it was for Judah. The question is, are we ready to listen to people like Tamar when they tell us the truth about what's going on in their lives? Or is our attitude always to refuse to listen to criticism, to reject it outright, to engage in, in what is known as DAVO when faced with criticism. Do you know what DAVO stands for? It, den- it stands for deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender. In other words, when confronted with evidence of wrongdoing, or even if we just suspect that that's what's going on, the response is then to make out that we're the victim and the victim is the abuser. Now, we're having to do a lot of thinking about safeguarding in the church and in the wider church at the moment, and and rightly so, but churches ought to have Tamars in them. And we hope and we pray and we intend St. John's to be a place where a Tamar can say, I've been hurt, and a Tamar can know that, that they will be taken seriously. It won't be denied. It won't be taken as attack. And the reason for that is that for Judah, the breakthrough for him only came when the truth about what he'd done was told. And when the lie that he'd lived was brought into the light. Now, if we're living in darkness, we will fear the light at all costs. But it's only in the light that the evil in the darkness can be dealt with. 
Do we believe that? The test for that is to think about this. How do we respond to criticism of any level about any things? How do we respond to that? Do we think here is an opportunity for the truth to be brought into the light? Or do we think, no, 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 not true of me. I'm not that kind of person. Can't be right. Well, that is Tamar. Finally, then, we need to see how the breakthrough that Tamar brought for Judah led, in the end, to Jesus, the sinless son of sinners and prostitutes. It's important to finish with this because it helps us to see that Tamar's ultimate identity in the Bible is not as a victim, simply, nor as a victim who did some morally dubious things to bring about change, but in the end as a mother of a breakthrough child, the mother of Perez, the mother of Jesus. Along with four other women specifically named in Matthew chapter 1. And all, all the women in Jesus' family tree in Matthew chapter 1 are, for want of a better word, just slightly dodgy. There's Tamar who dressed as a prostitute. There's Rahab who was a prostitute. There's Ruth who was a complete outsider. There was Bathsheba who was married to someone else. There's Mary who conceived a child as a virgin. Now, each of their stories and their circumstances is different, but the overall point Matthew makes is clear. Jesus is the sinless son of sinners like Judah, and again, he's mentioned explicitly in Matthew chapter 1. He's the sinless son of morally ambiguous women like Tamar. And the sinless son of sinners and prostitutes grew up to associate with, guess what, with sinners and prostitutes, much to the shock and the anger of the elite religious classes. And so Jesus said things like this. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And his message was the same as the one we see here in Genesis chapter 38. It's this, if you think you're okay with God as you are, if you are right in your own eyes and you can never do wrong, which is how Judah was, and how he thought of himself, well, you will damage yourself and others. And actually, worse than that, you will miss out on Jesus' invitation to be part of his family for eternity. But if then we belong to Jesus, what would he then have us do with whatever privilege and power that we may have? See, Judah had that privilege and power, but he used it for himself. And that is the pattern of the world. You know, just use your privilege and power for yourself and your loved ones. Well, what else can we do if the only way to acceptance and justification for ourselves is by our own achievements? But if we're already accepted, and if we're already loved, and if we're already justified by faith in the sinless Son of God who died for us on the cross, well then... We've got what we need. We've got that, that acceptance and that love already. Will we then use the power and the privilege that we may have not to make ourselves look good at the expense of others, not simply just to use other people for our selfish interests, like Judah did here, but will we use that power and privilege for the good of those, like Tamar, who have no voice and have no power and have no privilege? Will we use it for the good in the end of those who don't know Jesus? 
Wasn't it challenging if you were here with us last week to hear James Poole from Wycliffe Bible Translators calling us to have a real concern for those who don't know Jesus in this country and across the world. A concern that overflows into generosity with time and money and resources so that others may know Jesus too. Wasn't it challenging if you saw the little intro to our mission partners? And you can go back and watch it in last week's service on YouTube if you want to. And uh, we, we saw at least two. We saw Forte Torre in Bologna and St. Clement's in Manchester. These are churches with far less money and far fewer people and far fewer resources. And they're sending people and money out from themselves at great cost to plant new churches in their areas in Modena in another deprived part of Manchester. Now we have, from a human point of view, we have far greater resources. What are we going to do to ensure that those who need to hear about Jesus can do so? And not just those who kind of look like us and have the same values as us. Behind every chapter in the life of Joseph and his brothers is the God who works in all things for good. Even when people are working things for evil. That's the theme verse of the whole section is chapter 50, verse 20. We keep coming back to it. It's the same here. God provided a breakthrough for Judah in the form of Tamar, who told him the truth, who caused his eyes to be opened. So that whatever our mess, whatever our sin, whatever our blindness to the way we are using or misusing the privilege or power that we may be blessed with, we must pray for Tamar's to have a voice so that we can hear, so that our eyes can be opened, so that change can happen, so that wrongs can be righted, so that Jesus can be glorified as God continues working in all things for good. Let's pray for that now. Father God, we may be living like Judah, blind to our faults, blind to our sin, blind to the way our actions hurt those around us. Would you open our eyes? Give us that breakthrough moment that helps us to see what's really going on. We may be people like Tamar, for whom circumstances in our lives and things that have been done to us and things that we've done have caused harm but have caused great pain to ourselves. Father, would you help us to find ways to be able to tell those stories and to know that we will be listened to. And help us as a church to be a place that Tamar's 
can know that they will be listened to and loved. Help us to be a church that is using whatever power and privilege we might have to reach out to those who don't know Jesus, to ensure that those who have no voice and no agency are heard and are cared for and are loved and know that they're loved by you. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.